Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Aparuta desang amatasa tawaraye sodawanta bamunjantu satang. So this evening, this is the second evening of this retreat. And uh, encouragement, we all need encouragement on this path. Because we, we do get stuck, we, get <clears throat> we have obstructions and things to deal with just in our own mind. Because so we can understand oftentimes the teachings uh, intellectually, they're easy enough to comprehend. And uh, that's the Bariati Dhamma, or the, the, the Dhamma we get from the scripture. <clears throat> so that's acquired knowledge. You acquire that from outside yourself. So that's what we're mostly, you know, educated people who've acquired knowledge through going to schools, uh, universities, and so forth. <clears throat> and that's what we think knowledge is, is something you acquire. Or wisdom. What is wisdom, anyway? We use the words, common enough word in English language, and Pali, we call it Panya. But what exactly does Panya mean in terms of the reality of now? Is it wise sayings from sages of the past or knowledge we acquired from reading from reading philosophy? And so Panya is is universal wisdom. It's not personal. It's not like it's not even Buddhist. You know, Buddhism is is a convention, but wisdom is the very nature of Dhamma, of, of the universe that we live in, is wisdom. And it's through this wisdom, by, and how do we get to this wisdom? Because most of us uh, don't feel wise, you know, when you ask yourself, if you feel you're wise, it's probably uh, overestimating your ability. <laughs> but, so it's not like the ego, it's not like a personal attainment or property or acquisition. But it is here and now. And, and what is that which is here and now that we can recognize without going anywhere else, where we're in the position we're sitting in here in the temple? And so you can know, right now, you're, you're, you're experiencing consciousness, like last evening's talk was about 
suffering and consciousness. And consciousness then is 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 a fact that you can verify just by not by trying to figure out whether you're conscious or not or think about what what I mean by that, but just being aware, opening up the the gate, to, uh, the escape hatch, mindfulness, in other words. So sati and panya, mindfulness, wisdom go together. The sati is is our ability to be present here and now. Because even though, obviously, that's a true fact, we're all here, and the time is now, nobody's going to refute that on a personal level. You know, I'm here, I'm sitting here, you're sitting there, and the time, you say, what time is it? It's five minutes past eight o'clock, that's convention. But the reality is it's now that you're listening, you're hearing, you're feeling, you're experiencing through, through the body, through the senses, and it's like this. So wisdom, in this sense, is not a critical function. It's not saying right or wrong, good or bad, true or false. The critical function is the thinking mind, you know. So <clears throat> when you try to figure out whether you're wise or not, or what is wisdom, or whatever, then you get ca- you caught you caught in the in the proliferating tendencies of the intellect. And it leads to doubt, uncertainty, am I right, am I wrong? But mindfulness isn't about right and wrong. It's here and now. And this is, and being able to recognize this. So the Buddha's teaching of the Four Noble Truths is is a teaching to to lead us onward to that reality, the third noble truth of here and now. In in a, in a real way, recognizing it, uh, awakening to reality. So you can, if we often, I used to try to figure out the proper English equivalent to Dhamma, and the, the best one I've come up with over all these years is reality. So in Singapore, a few years ago, they, they wanted me to make a, a slogan for the Buddha Dhamma Foundation. And so I gave them, Awaken to Reality. <laughs> and then people have asked me, one time I remember somebody asked me, can you describe uh, Buddha's teaching in, in one sentence? I said, I can do it with one word. Wake up. <laughs> Hyphenated word. <laughs> so that's not, is that difficult to do, to wake up, to be here and now? You know, that's asking that you spend your life developing all kinds of special abilities and qualities in order to wake up here and now? <clears throat> or is it, is it just natural? 
a natural state of being, which we've forgotten. As we grow up, we become more complicated. We, we form views, opinions of ourselves. We, we get praised and blamed. We get rewarded and punished accordingly to the society's demands, parental expectations, and on and on like that. The, the, the way of conditioning us into being uh, uh, what is considered a normal citizen or member of society. <clears throat> and so the, the civilizing process of education and convention, we, we tend to identify with. We, we, we don't realize it's happening when it's happening. We just absorb it. Like a, a, a child is like a sponge. They just uh, absorb whatever's around, you know, good or bad, right or wrong. So what is wisdom then? Or panya? And it's, it's consciousness. It's the ability to discern reality from delusion. It's not even saying reality's better than delusion. <laughs> it's not taking sides. But it's an awakening to reality, to Dhamma, to the reality of, of pure conscious awareness that is our very nature, you know. So it's not, you don't acquire that. You don't get it by doing something and in the future you hope to, to get uh, wisdom. It's learning to, to open, to trust, to... Uh, observe, be the observer. So wisdom is, is the observer of delusion. Like delusion can't observe wisdom. It's impossible. So delusion, in this sense, uh, the Pali word of Icha, not in, in, and in the strict terms of Pali Buddhism, of Icha is not knowing the the Four Noble Truths, there are three aspects and twelve insights. So, so it, it simplifies everything, put it in these, these uh, teachings of the Buddha. They're directives. They're not doctrines. They're directional signs. Like if you want to go to London, you follow the signs. They, you going to Hemel Hempstead, and then you see a sign pointing toward London. It says London on it. And if you follow the signs, you get to London eventually. <laughs> but enlightenment is quicker than that. It takes time. <laughs> it takes time to get to London from Hemel Hempstead, where... It's timeless, the reality of Dhamma, wisdom, consciousness is here and now. So it's not, you don't have to go anywhere, but awaken. Now the second noble, the first noble truth is, what is aware of dukkha, of suffering? The first noble truth, there is the statement, there is dukkha, there is suffering. So, 
that is, it's, it's not a, a kind of doctrine, doctrinal statement. It's not saying everything is miserable and suffering. So it's not coming from trying to be metaphysical in any way or make generalizations. It's just pointing to the experience of suffering. So what do we do? We look outward and see suffering around us. We, we read the news and we hear all, all the kind of tragedies, scandals, miserable things that are happening in the world. <clears throat> and, and, and you realize that that's suffering. But in the reality of our own life, which is we're not involved in, in you know, directly or personally in any major conflicts, I hope. We, we can live in a nice kuti here in Amravati and still suffer. Even when everybody is, is being cooperative and good to you. <laughs> so, so why, what is it? It's, it's a noble truth. And so to understand suffering is the insight, is the, 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 the to, it should be understood, suffering has been understood. The first three aspects are insights into reality, awakening to reality. And the second noble truth, the, there is a cause or an origin of suffering. It's not ultimate reality, in other words. Duke is not the ultimate truth. There's a cause. It has a cause. It has a beginning. It has an origin. So suffering is something that we can observe with wisdom. But we tend to be aware of suffering as a personal, something personal, something wrong with me or the world around it, me. There's something wrong with it. And I suffer because of the, the things that are wrong. <clears throat> we can apply it to ourselves. I'm Because I'm this way, I get angry and jealous and frightened and and I shouldn't. Or we can blame the suffering we're experiencing in the present on something else, somebody else. But that's not the noble truth. That's just the reaction to suffering. The habitual, blind reaction to, to something unpleasant, unwanted, uh, that, that we tend to identify as some personal quality. But in, to understand suffering is not to uh, grasp it, and identify with it, but to recognize it, it's like this. Just uh, this uh, reality of, of being, the sense of being separate from everything, of feeling lonely or different or self-conscious or, you know, it can go into all kinds of anxieties and worries and... <clears throat> self-criticisms or blaming others. But that's not the noble truth. The noble truth is there is suffering. It should be understood. And then the third insight, 
is the result of of the, of understanding suffering. You, you there's an, an an profound knowing through wisdom, not through acquired knowledge from scripture. Through wisdom, suffering hasn't been understood. So you see, this is a reflective paradigm the Buddha gave us. The statement from that we we the, from the scripture, the Buddha's word, and so forth. The second aspect, what to do about it, to understand it. The third, the the insight into it has been realized, has been understood. So that's pretty clear, isn't it? That that the there's three aspects to each noble truth is is what I call a reflective paradigm pattern to follow. It's no, so it's not critical. It's not saying anything's wrong with suffering or who's to blame for it. It's recognized. It's like this. Now the origin of suffering. <clears throat> Uh, suffering or dukkha has has an origin. It begins, and and therefore anything that begins ends. So the beginning, uh, the origin of suffering is ignorance of dhamma, not having insights, just operating out of the momentum of habit, conditioning, fear, desire. In these kind of emotions, we we tend to just be caught in reactivity to praise and blame, success and failure, the worldly dhammas. We're caught in just reactivity, which is natural. Nobody wants suffering. I don't want suffering. We, I, I want happiness, security, love, acceptance all the best. That's what, that's what, the, out of desire, out of the origin of suffering, avicca, ignorance of Dhamma, then desire arises and we grasp it. You know, I want happiness, I don't want this suffering. So this is very important uh, to reflect on the nature of desire. Because the second noble truth is, is an investigation of desire, of dhanha. And the Pali, Pali word for desire is dhanha. So translated into to the English word desire, and in, in English context, desire always has a sense of something kind of a pejorative quality to it. If you say somebody has a lot of desires, that's not a compliment. <laughs> they might have a lot of very good desires. Some people have are over you know, oversupplied with very good desires. So desires can be good, they can be bad. <clears throat> so it's not about not having desire because this realm that we're experiencing is a desire realm. The very bodies that are sitting here are desire forms. The senses, they're about desire. 
what we see attracts us. We, we desire to be attracted through sight. The pleasure of uh, mellifluous sounds and the aversion to cacophony or to ugly things that we might see. There's a reaction, it's natural. The, the eyes contacts the object and it, it's pleasing, we want it. It's, that's natural. Or if it's unpleasing, we want to get rid of it. So meditation isn't about getting rid of desires or getting rid of the bad things, but in, in awakening to desire, because it's a sankara, one des desire to get rid of desires, uh, you know, is a hopeless situation. You just drive yourself crazy with that one. Desire to get rid of desire and the desire to get rid of the desire to get rid of desire. <laughs> That's all the further I can go. <laughs> Even I get twisted up when I get beyond three, three stages of desire. <clears throat> but so the Buddha emphasized Gamadanha, which is uh, the Pali for sensual desire, sense desires through the senses. It's quite obvious what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch through, through sensory contact, impingement, <coughs> desire arises. Then Bawadanha, this is a problem with many of us in the, in the religious orders, in religion itself, is a desire to become, to get something you don't have. Desire for Nibbana, desire for uh, stream entry, desire for jhanas, desire for samadhi, desire for getting, what is it? You, to get something you, you don't have yet. That's good, you know, like samadhi's good, jhanas are good, sotapanna, arahant, Nibbana, those are all good desires, altruistic desires. But they're still desires. Bawadana is like that, wanting to get something you don't have yet. And then Vipawadana is desire to get rid of the, un the nasty bits, the unpleasant, get rid of anger, get rid of fear, get rid of uh, sexual obsessions, get rid of, of confusion and anxiety, get rid of worry. You know, we all want to get rid of those things on a personal level. So, this is, this is investigation of desire. What can no desire? What can no gamadana, sensual desire, or bawadana, or vipawadana? What what is it that that discerns it? It's not a a desire, is it? Desire can't see itself or see other desires. But this sati sampachanya, mindfulness, wisdom, intuitive awareness, this ability we have that the Buddha pointed to 
this is the whole point of the the the, the uh, uh, four noble truth teaching. Is a directional signs. Where is it? It's directing us to look, not outward, to to destroy desire or get rid of things that arouse desire, but to know desire for what it is. It's it's the way it is. Gamadana is like this. So we we be a relationship to desire is knowing and understanding it rather than grasping it. So the insight, the insight is to let go. Let go of desire. But to let go of desire, you have to know what desire is. We don't think we should let go of our desires can be one of those uh, righteous statements that religious people tend to often give us, you should not have any desires, you should let go of all your desires, is, is, a, is a righteous statement. But in order to let go of desire, it's not annihilating it, because this realm is a desire realm, this is the way it is. Bodies desire form. The senses are desire forms. The objects around us are desire forms. The, the universe that we perceive through the senses is all about dunha, desire, arising and ceasing, birth and death. So the meditator then is aware of desire, invest, knows desire is desire, it's a sankhara, just another sankhara, and and rather than, and we tend to grasp desires out of habit because that's the way we're conditioned to to grasp desires. And when we see, when we observe the the suffering we create in our lives through grasping desire it can be any of the three or all three at various times of the day and night we do it in the form of a habitual behavior conditioned behavior but awareness sati sampachanya and panya is not is not habit It's awakening to reality. Wake up, in other words. And I found this second noble truth fascinating. When I was a summonera, the first year I ordained, 1966, in Nong Khai, in Thailand, I, I spent a year investigating the Four Noble Truths, and I, I got through the first two. Through reflecting on, I could see this, this uh, you know, had insights into suffering and the cause of suffering and into letting go. But to let go means you have to know what to let go of. 
And sometimes the, when we use the word letting go, means like getting rid of. I don't like desire. I'm going to get rid of my desires. And it's, so that's vipavadanhag, and you can't win on that by doing that. It's to understand, to to recognize, to know for yourself through letting go that you actually let go of desires, which is just releasing your blind, habitual grasp on desire. So vicha there's is the cause dhanha upadana grasping. So in the in the Pali language upadana is is like grasping. You you have a common sensual desire, you grasp it, you 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 know, out of habit, out of just that's the way you're conditioned to do that. You see something you like, you you want to get it through the sense through the sensory impingement. <clears throat> then Mawadana, wanting to become. Uh, I'm not good enough the way I am. You know, I'm on a personal level. When we all start with the idea, there's something you know I've got to get that I don't have yet. I'm not good enough the way I am. And I need to do something in order to get rid of these faults, these delusions I have about myself in the world. And uh, so I'm going to come to Amarvati practice meditation to to get rid of these delusions because I'm a deluded person. And the Buddha, I hope Buddhism will help me break through these delusions. Is is generally the scenarios we operate from in the beginning. But is there a deluded person? I mean, you create, you know, when you believe that you are a delusion and a person, that's avicca, ignorance of Dhamma. And it doesn't mean I'm already enlightened. I don't need to meditate. <laughs> and so, I mean, there's the various views about you know you shouldn't put any effort in. It's just natural and just awaken to the reality of here and now and and listen to the birds singing in the trees. And it's all poetic and beautiful. But you know, we we might be inspired by such teachings, but but this second noble truth is actually giving us something practical to, to use, to investigate, to get to the root cause of suffering. So we can see for ourselves, we're not just trying to to pretend to be enlightened and have uh, and be free from suffering, but observing suffering, observing desire. And what is it that knows desire but doesn't judge it? It's not about good or bad desires, it's panya. Because panya allows us to awaken to the nature of sankhara. All sankharas are impermanent. Sape sankharani cha.
So the, the path to wisdom is mindfulness. Sati, sampajanya, phrase intuitive, intuition. That's an English word. What does it mean? It's not about, when we say somebody's intuitive, we, we think that they kind of feel life more. When you're very rational, you don't feel very much. Like the thinking mind is, it doesn't feel anything. It's judgmental. You know, so it, it can be very brutal because it wants to punish and the bad and reward the good and and uh, it it it's very black and white about it's very righteous about how things should be. The thinking mind doesn't doesn't feel anything. It's not about feeling at all. But the sense realm that we're experiencing is all, you know, the reality of here and now is really about feeling, not about right and wrong, isn't it? At this very moment, you're feeling, you're experiencing, you know, just through your body, some sensations, pleasant, painful, or neutral. There's feeling in your, in your mind, in your consciousness, of feeling interested, bored, confused, happy or sad, whatever. The, the state of mind, the emotional state you're experiencing at this moment is like this. The body's like this. So it's a, in this statement of it's like this, notice it's not judging anything. It's, it's just a, a pointing. It's to say it's like this isn't pointing outside, is it? It's encouragement to look, to observe to open satisampachanya, intuitive awareness. And then wisdom can inform consciousness. All sankharas are impermanent. Sape sankara nicha. So recognize the like Vedana and feeling, pleasurable feeling, sukha Vedana, unpleasant feeling, tukha Vedana, tukha matsukha Vedana, neutral feeling, both on on the physical plane and mentally being aware of a. You know when you're inspired. You have you. Somebody praises you. You win a prize. You get the OBE. You get a title from the Thai king. That kind of feeling is <laughs> you know. You call that happiness, or you feel glad or happy about it. Is like this. So it's not trying not to feel happy about being praised by the society or anything, but recognizing happiness as sankara rather than as seeing grasping it and and wanting to uh, maintain that feeling because it's very impermanent. 
to be praised and awarded accolades or titles and and appreciation from others is like this. It's happiness is like this. And that's sati panya, mindfulness wisdom operating. Then when life goes the other direction, you you don't win the lottery, you lose your your you can't pay the mortgage. People are criticizing you, fault fault finding you and and disparaging you is like this. You know, praise and blame. And wisdom it's the same, isn't it? Whether you're being praised or blamed doesn't isn't really that important. It's the awareness that's important. The sati sampachanya, the wisdom, to know that whatever you're feeling, physically, <coughs> physically or emotionally, now is sankara, sapi sankara nicha. All conditions, all sankaras are impermanent. So nicha is the is the word in the vipassana world, you know, to explore anicca, the impermanence of conditioned phenomena, because that's the first characteristic common to all conditions. And what is it that knows anicca? It's satipanya, it's dhamma, it's awareness, it's non-personal. You can't claim it uh, personal as a personal attainment. Or if you do, you're deluded. So many, you know, in teaching meditation retreats and so forth, so many people want to, you know, they have come for interviews and then they, how do I get rid of my anger, or is a common one, or fear? I have a lot of fear and anxiety. How do I get rid of it? You know, so this is a fairly common question because we, we're strongly identified with feeling anxious or or our bad temper or anger, angry moods or fears. Because, you know, on the ideal level, on the rational level, on the unfeeling level of life, I should be brave, I shouldn't have fear, uh, I'm a bhikkhu for 50 years now and I should be above anger, I should have metta for all sentient beings, Uh, that's ideal. That's that's the, but it doesn't feel anything. That's not the way things are. That's a beautiful ideal. And when we grasp ideas or ideals, we still suffer because we're never going. This is not about ideals. You know, this is life as it is here and now, as you're experiencing your body here and now, your 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 emotional mental state. Here and now is like this. The atmosphere is like this. 
So, you know, like from my own background, you know, from being born and raised in, in the United States. So it's a country, it's a civilization based on ideals. Freedom, equality, democracy, the, the best you can create in your mind of, of ideas. So ideals are, you know, the best, the top of the, the, the line, the best you can possibly think. Universal love, compassion, being free from all defilements, uh, having everybody equal and everything fair and just, no corruption, uh, a completely democratic system that works where everybody's cooperating for the welfare of the country, for the welfare of the population. There's no selfish political interests. That's how it should be, I admit. But what is that in the here and now when I talk like that? That's an ideal, isn't it? It's very high, very beautiful, not to disparage it. But awareness, sati sampachanya, allows us to see things as they are. It's a sankhara. Ideals are sankharas, which isn't taking away the beauty of the ideal, but putting it in proper perspective because we, we're living life, we're experiencing reality, here and now. We're experiencing feeling and sensation and attraction and aversion and, and wonder and, fear and uh, terror and so forth, here and now. Where the ideal, if grasped out of ignorance, then it makes us always discontented because Life isn't ideal. Life isn't fair and always just and, and that it's like this. And in this way, it's not cynical or, or negative. It's just the willingness to learn from the way life is rather than uh, wishing it were otherwise, wishing it were perfect. And everybody was enlightened, and, and you'd have a really functioning democracy if everybody in in the UK was an arahant. <laughs> It'd be ideal society, but that's not the way it is. <laughs> it's like this. So, like the UK. The, the political structure, the political system, the economy is like this. It's not saying it's good or right or wrong, but it is a way of accepting the here and now with, with, through discerning it as sankara rather than uh, grasping it and, and grumbling because it's not doesn't fit into the ideal that you're you're holding your high-minded standards and principles that 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 you adhere to, and then you just feel angry, disappointed, cynical because the world isn't what it should be. Because the world is the way it is. It's about sankara, about birth and death, old age, sickness and death. It's about change. 
And so our refuge then is in the changeless reality of Dhamma. And that can only be recognized through a realized through mindfulness, sati sampajanya. So letting go of ideals isn't kind of annihilating them. Ideals are like like guiding stars. They're high above in the sky. They give directions. You know, directional signs. So guiding star, you, you, you... You have to notice that. But if you stay focused on the guiding star, you, you don't notice the, the ditch in front of you. <laughs> the guiding star is beautiful. <clears throat> so that's one, one level. We need inspiration. We need hope and, and, and guidance and things like that. There's a direction, faith. In, in this tradition is based on faith or sada. But in, in Buddha Dhamma, faith is always balanced with wisdom. It's not a blind faith. It's, an, it's through awakening that wisdom can operate. So the, the faith you have in, in the Buddha's teaching increases the more you practice it. Well, you have sata and banya, faith and wisdom. So, where well, there's blind faith, where you just believe in something, and, and but there's no way to practice it. You just hold on to, to some some belief system that appeals to you, that you have faith in, that you believe in. But oftentimes one holds on to beliefs out of fear and, and uh, compulsion. You know, so much of religious faith is, you, you know, if you don't believe, you, you, you'll go to hell. That's threatening, isn't it? That's how I was brought up. If you, if you don't believe in God, you go to hell. And so, I mean, that's kind of, you must believe in God because <laughs> the alternative is hell. <laughs> and I, I didn't want that. <laughs> so I, I reflect on my own experience. Like, when I was 21, I came across Zen Buddhism. I was in uh, the U.S. Navy at the time, 1955, and I was on a cargo supply ship from San Francisco, which was the home port to 
the bases, the military bases in Japan and Philippines. And it was in Japan, I, somebody gave me uh, these books by R.H. Bryce on haiku poetry, and they mentioned Zen Buddhism. And these were, he was, uh, I think, British or American. But uh, I never met him, but he, he translated a lot of this and translating haiku, Japanese haiku into English uh, language. And something in me kind of became interested in that. So the rise, I consider that the beginning of faith, before I knew nothing about Buddhism. I'd heard of it, you know, but when you're brought up as a Christian, you dismiss all other religions as pagan or wrong or radical, even though you know nothing about them. You're just told that they're, they're not, that, that that's not the way. So, you, you know, you, you just believe what you're, you're told. Still you start, until you start questioning. And the thing with, with Zen Buddhism is it's, uh, and my nature, personal nature, is a, is a doubter. I'm not a, a faith. Faith doesn't come easily. People tell me I have to believe in something. I can't do it. So this is my, my, my character, personality. My sister... Devout, she's 85 now, she's a devout Roman Catholic, she never had that problem. And she's very happy too. <laughs> so what works for her didn't work for me. Then one time I was in India in 1973 and, or 72, <clears throat> going on Tudong and wandering in India. And I came to this ashram in Gorakhpur, a Hindu ashram, and and uh, I asked to spend the night there. So the the Swami, the head Swami, came out. He was a very impressive-looking man in orange robes and had earlobes that that came down to his shoulders, and he had big, beautiful jade earrings in the in the in these long earlobes, very impressive looking person. And he said, you should be a Christian. You were brought up as a Christian, weren't you? And he started yelling at me, and I thought, hey. <laughs> <laughs> And so I thought, um, I said, well, I'm a Buddhist. And he said, your, you should stay with your own religion. You shouldn't change religions. He was kind of preaching at me. So I asked him if we could spend the night there, and he said yes. So <laughs> that was good enough. But didn't arouse faith in, in his particular style. <laughs> but it did get me reflecting. Why? Why? Because faith... Uh, Starts. Who's to know what it is that arouses faith in some that doesn't that bores somebody else? 
Because at that time, 1955, not very many young American males were would have much faith in Zen Buddhism or Buddhism or anything Asian at the time. It was all very different uh, interests at that age when you're 21. So I, I'm kind of reflecting back. That was the it was an, just an in, initial interest in the haiku poetry and it led into Zen Buddhism. And then that leads to this moment here where, you know, 60 years later, you know, the pursued that, that faith, the original faith that just started with the interest led onward as soon as I, you know, could find other books on Zen Buddhism it was becoming increasingly kind of fashionable in the Bay Area in the 1950s. And the more I read, the more interest I had in it, and to the point of wanting to practice, to, to not just read, because reading inspires, and it's important in the beginning, but it, it's not sustainable. You can't sustain uh, inspiration. It gets you going, but it it's not sustainable. Where meditation, <clears throat> bodhipatta, is is what's necessary in order to balance faith and interest in something with wisdom. And through this teaching of the Four Noble Truths, taking uh, this first noble truth, something ordinary, I didn't have to have faith in that. It's not, you're not saying believe in suffering, because I suffered. Even at 21, I suffered a lot. And uh, over what? Over just thinking wrongly, of jealousy, of fear, of... Uh, self-consciousness of anxiety about the future and on and on there are all kinds of neurotic uh, habit patterns that that tend to take me over when I was young so the first noble truth was was not a mystery was not something I, I had to believe in it's just something I started looking at in a different way and seeing it always as uh, in a personal way. So faith <laughs> starts with interest, like if all of you come here to Amravati for this evening's day. So now they're going to, many of you on the retreat this week. This is, uh, faith has brought you here. Interest, in other words. It's not a matter of believing in Buddhism or agreeing with everything you read about Buddhism, but it's, it's the beginning of the bodhibhata or the practice. It gives you clear directions on how to, to realize this yourself, to awaken to reality, not just believe in somebody's version of reality.
So the simple reality of here and now, this sense of awareness is like this. See it as, as relaxed attention, not just, it's not willful, it's not trying to get something or control, it's openness, receptivity, listening, non-judgmental. And then this refrain of Sape Sankarani Cha is a is helpful guidance to reflect on all conditions are impermanent. So we can apply that, you know, obviously to the physical condition, but to you know where because we're so such a feeling species, we're so sensitive. And we live in a sense realm, the sense world, the natural world is all about feeling, sensitivity, birth and death. Our relationship to sensitivity is to understand it, to be aware of it is like this, feeling happy is like this, feeling sad is like this. And what is it that notices, that is aware, that discerns happiness and sadness? It's conscious awareness, it's Dhamma, it's wisdom. And that you can trust as you, as you cultivate this path and, and the insights uh, you get insight into this is through this kind of practice. You know, it becomes more clear, more, you know, it becomes more simple. Because Buddhism can look incredibly complicated. When you think of all of the Tripitaka and the Abhidhamma and Mahayana Buddhism and and Vajrayana Buddhism, and there's so much written on Buddhism. And so, so much to read, so much to, you know, to learn Tibetan, learn Sanskrit, learn Pali, <coughs> learn Chinese. Uh, you can spend our time learning to, uh, to investigate scriptures or translate scriptures into other languages. But the real heart, of the Buddhist teaching is very simple. Wake up, waken to reality. So that's enough for this evening. Narayan Dhammakata Sadukarang Dadamase Sadhu 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 Ah